everyone. Good afternoon and welcome to our second installment of our live panel discussions. My name is Lani and I'll be your host this afternoon. As a collaborative initiative, Parkwork and GoTo have organized today's tech leader panel discussion, Accelerate Your Growth by Reducing Time to Market, with Matt joining us from the UK, Marcel van Bentham and Nikola Yuchev both joining us from the Netherlands. In today's panel, our panelists will be discussing how agility and adaptability can contribute to reducing your time to market and staying ahead of the competition. The panelists will share their personal experiences and lessons learned working at their respective companies and also discuss future trends in technology and their influence on multiple business environments. We will also have a live Q&A towards the end of the session, so please feel free to submit any questions you may have in the live chat function. Matt, Nicola, and Marcel, thank you so much for being here today. We really appreciate you taking the time to be here with us. To start off, I'd like you all to give a little short introduction about yourself. Um, Matt, if you could start the introductions. Uh, yeah, so I'm Matt Turner. I'm calling you here from London in the UK. I do DevSecOps stuff, you know, kind of shift left, infrastructure automation kind of things. I'm currently at Marshall West, which is in the, the finance industry. Uh, picking from here. Uh, my name is Nicola. I am originally from Bulgaria, currently living in Amsterdam for many years. My company is called Relay42. I'm also in kind of DevSecOps, and Relay42 is in marketing automation slash online ad serving. So that's our industry. Marcel? Uh, my name is Marcel from Bentham, uh, working for Trifork. I'm Chief Commercial Officer, so responsible for marketing and sales Trifork in Amsterdam. I've been in the IT services industry since about 1996, 97, I think, when first the modems appeared. I've been part of quite a few digital transformations. I think they're still ongoing. It's an exciting industry to be working in. Great. Well, thank you all for that. I've got the first question that we've received in advance. So how fierce is competition within your respective industry? Nicola, would you like to start? Yeah, sure. I would say both fierce and not so much because the field is so big and layers are so differentiated in terms of what functionality they give and in terms of who they are targeting that sometimes you find yourself that you're partnering with companies, that you are actually a competitor in some way or another. It's a very big industry. I would uh, say maybe tremendous industry, the online advertising. And the competition is sometimes fierce, but generally the market is not fully saturated from what we, what we see at the moment. Mm. To add a little bit on that, Nicola, Trifork is in the IT services industry. There has been fierce competition all along, I think, for the last like decades. Uh, but then again, demand at the moment is so high uh, that there's also a scarcity. <laughs> And that there's, well, no real competition at the moment, I think. I mean, it's, it's just a matter of scarcity and having the right people and not enough people to do all the work. Uh, that's more of an issue than, well, being troubled by lots of competitors at the moment. It has been different, especially after like 9-11 or like the financial crisis in 2008 or 9. Yeah, so we've, we've seen uh, different times. Yeah. yeah, I think it's pretty easy. Fear server in finance. It depends what you do, but if you're, you know, a fund or a investment bank or something, you do struggle to to differentiate. And often, how you do that is by it's kind of bottom line stuff, right? You you reduce your costs and you become more efficient, and you you pass those savings on to your customers. So that is a lot more about how you run the business. I guess feeds into the into the IT side of things. Maybe rather than having like a killer a killer product. Although even without, you know, I've been at startups that were, were first into a market and they're first into a field. And even without that competition, you still fear it. 
right? You, you, you fear disruption. I guess you, you're competing with yourself because you still set yourself these, these targets. You, know, you, you think you know what you know, best looks like and you know you're not there and you're always worried that a younger startup is you know, it's, it's going to get there before you and then disrupt you. So I think even if you don't have competition, you kind of need to fear it. Otherwise, it will you know, arrive if you see what I mean. You'll get lazy and you'll get taken over by someone. Yeah, yeah. You're right. always the better version of yourself compared to before, even if the market is not extremely saturated, of course. You need to keep the competitive edge. I think so. I think that's what's always driven me because otherwise, somebody, if you can see it, right, if you can envisage it, if you know it's possible, if you don't do it, then somebody else will. Yeah, yeah. for sure. So then I'll move on to the second question, which would be, what do you think are the biggest challenges to stay ahead of competition in your industries? Marcel, would you like to start and take this one away? Yeah, sure. So for us, it's definitely being able to attract the right talent and to also retain them. Good people are scarce and everybody wants them. So you have to make them want to work with you. Yeah. It's extremely hard to retain people that have the skills that you need, especially nowadays you need not people that specialize in one thing, but that can learn anything that, you know, the market can throw at them, anything that's relevant. Mm -hmm. And you need people that continuously improve themselves because if the company improves, the company needs more features, more features faster, more stability. Just what was good a year ago is just not good enough anymore because of more loads, more ways to break your supply chain, you know, by different security uh, vulnerabilities. So everything is getting better and more complex. So you need people that kind of correspond to that base. For us, that's also the biggest thing. But maybe the second thing is actually visibility on the market. So mm -hmm. because it's such a wide space and there are so many solutions, at least in our field, that you can choose from, and they kind of overlap with one another, you have to shine somewhere. You have to shine somewhere. And if you shine, you have to also be seen. And that actually is an area that I'm not super good at, just marketing, like knowing the right channels to, to market your product. That's as simple as it is. Yeah, so to, to distinguish yourself or to stand out as, a, as an employer, you mean? No, no. Well, that, that's, that's of course, for sure, that's to retain the people. But also, one of the challenges to actually get more funding, more clients, is just differentiate yourself from the competitors in, like, what you bring out as a technology. Because features-wise, there are, like, I don't know, in the market, there are so many features and so, so many companies providing so many features that overlap to such a few extent that you need to be different somewhere. Or at least you need to say to make more people that you're different than your competitors. That's extremely important for your senior. I guess there's always going to be hard in a big saturated market. Do you think your competitors are better at that than you? I mean, I'm sure they struggle with it as well. Or I think compared to us, much better with much deeper pockets. The difference between us and them, we're not funded in the American model, right? So it's not like huge venture capital, then yeah, do what you want and hire and grow as much as you want. We are funded more organic. So from our own sales, from our own you know acquisition of clients. And at a certain moment, you realize that you don't have the same sales force like an American giant and then you have to differentiate yourself or try to play their game by growing your marketing sales departments to their level and, their, and the aggressiveness of your marketing campaign so yeah I think we are very different from an American player from European maybe not so much but from American very different in terms of size and money I think I'd probably I'd probably say the same thing again right is that talent is always a problem attraction I guess and retention maybe they're slightly different like attraction is about finding the right people you know even getting on their radar and then persuading them to work for you if you they want to offer persuading them to work for you over the competition but then your retention like keeping them interested getting them to stay motivating them to work you know in your best interests and to do the last 20% of projects that are you know the testing that kind of stuff like people are happy to come on board I think and get
get experience and maybe if you've got a good name get that on their resume but getting people to stay for the long term and really affect that strategic change is maybe a slightly different problem but yeah both of those things and then maybe data I would say there's so much of a lot of industries now is about getting lots of data feeds getting insights from them you know knowing what to do so many people are employed as sort of data scientists now and obviously there's the explosion in artificial intelligence if you want to call it that you know statistical inference so just getting all of that data storing it understanding it you know getting the, the people and the technology in place to, to be able to make the most of all the data that's available out there like it's a very difficult it's not just a technological problem um, it can even be a commercial problem you can you can have to pay for a lot of data sources so i think that's something that companies struggle to adjust to as well and i think it's very valuable in a, in a lot of industries I had a look at the website of Marshall Ways this afternoon, Matt, and it says alternative investment solutions. It's uh, the big tagline they use. So what's the alternative thing? I think it just means we offer a range of funds that, you know, expose you to, to a whole load of different stuff. It's not just, you know, a long, short equity kind of stuff. But that messaging will be positioned for the market it's in, right, where people expect a certain thing. And I guess we say we, we try to differentiate, you know, we try to have a wider, very more interesting offering than, than other people. Mm. It's something that makes you a bit curious, maybe. So it's uh, it could be a good market marketing slogan yeah it's a good acquisition strategy i believe yeah to say oh we are different probably you specify how you're different after you have a client that wants to see how you're different well it's easy to yeah it's easy to say isn't it i think everybody has to slightly over promise in the sales cycle right and then uh, you know you actually go and produce the goods when the contract is signed and you have some of the money i think uh, i think that's always been the way really We've seen at least in the past that our sales cycle was very much far away from what we actually had. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, extremely upsetting, of course, for the developers that have to you know, deliver now in a hurry because the contract is signed fast. So that was actually one of the reasons why we invested in a lot of automation in the release cycle. So how fast we can actually go to market. This is the title of this talk anyway. So we put a tremendous investment in terms of time and in people hours into making sure that our pipelines are easy to maintain like the least amount of friction so you can deliver a feature. Well, I would say that's the secret sauce for us is more time spent on the pipeline rather than the actual feature. And that repeated many, many times. Well, of course, I'm going to say that I'm head of the platform team, kind of. It's super, super important from what we've seen, especially when you have onboarders in some stuff that you cannot even, you know, measure. You probably don't even measure the ability of a newcomer to orientate themselves from one microservice to another. The more similar they are and the more your tools are nice and helpful for them to orientate themselves, the faster you can get something out of this newcomer. So we put a big amount of effort there, I would say. Yeah, and no, I think you're right. That gets exactly to the, the point of this, right? Agility and adaptability. You know, the reality of the world is your competitors might come out with something really great and you're like, oh, that's a good idea. We should have our own version of that as fast as possible. Yeah, or reality dictates you have to sell something that you maybe haven't built yet. But it's how quickly you change onto, onto building that and how quickly can you get it done and how reliably as well, I think. You know, maybe it'll take on average four weeks, but if your variance is 100%, you know, if it might take eight weeks, then you might be into the kind of place where you're going to get sued for a breach of contract. But if it's, you know, four weeks, possibly two days, and you're sort of sure about that, you you can take a lot more risks maybe so yeah i think all of that stuff's really important and like you're saying it's not just if people think of platform and being in the cloud and oh what if i get a customer in australia i can duplicate my infrastructure you know in the data center near them using terraform and that's it, that's great 
but it is you're right at all levels of the stack i mean even right at the start of my career you know they sit you down as a graduate and they say right you know this is an old legacy code base the first thing we're going to do is put it under test because when we put it under test we can refactor it safely and then we can add features so it's all about if you get to a code base like you say that looks familiar it is documented it's it's under test it's following familiar patterns you're just able to go much more quickly and much more safely as well you know if you, you feel comfortable going quick and if you have to go quick you're much less likely to break something and for us is uh, probably also for you uh, matt uh, you're probably even heavier regulated than us but we are working with personal data so pretty heavily regulated so how fast you can go without you know throwing all caution to the wind and you know during an audit getting some not so satisfactory results so we put a lot of effort in building guardrails you know dependency uh, checks you know so somebody doesn't make something quick fast and then regret for the whole company mm. so it's, it's super important that you invest in that as well yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. We're heavily, heavily regulated, but there's ways of doing that stuff, right? You can do it well or you can do it bad. If the auditor wants a report, you know, if they just want a long report in a certain format, because that's what auditors like, then you yeah. can automate the generation of that, right? Because all the all the information about it hopefully is, is available to an automated system. And, and you know, again, the guardrails, there's ways of putting up guardrails that are easier to work with. For the guardrails, it's it's... The guardrails can be, you know, something that stops you. Obviously, I, I think I get uh, what Matt's point is, uh, that the guardrails can be something that's extremely like a nuisance for you to navigate and maybe they reduce your agility. That's adhering to compliance, et cetera, Nicola? Exactly. Well, all the guardrails, because it doesn't have to be not also necessarily to compliance. It can be just like how do I make sure that somebody of my guys doesn't introduce typo squatting in my uh, Mm -hmm. in my dependencies you know like and then i have a data miner running on on my infrastructure so you can go very heavy-handed and have some guy just checking all the dependencies you know at the end of the month or whatever or you can automate it i think that was the point that matt was trying to make you should make it work for your team rather than against yeah. it exactly yeah just make it as easy as possible so for example we have a compliance requirement pure separation uh, between people who can develop the code and people who can deploy the code, which is very hard if you're DevOps. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> almost impossible, right? So what we do aim for is, at the moment, is uh, not fully automated, but the idea is to have the same pipeline and the pipeline to just be like a Slack message to a designated person who is responsible for like overseeing it and saying, yes, I approve, but it's as little friction as possible as compared to, hey, can you write this document for me and whatever. That's our, our future. So we are uh, like trying to reduce the friction while having compliance as much as possible. Mm. Have, you, have you ever tried, though? I've also heard stories here of Dutch banks who actually involve the compliance authorities in their project uh, so they can with them uh, to maybe, maybe. Would that even be an option? Uh, well, we uh, interestingly enough, the company that audits us because it's a private body is also an advisor to us. So usually when we introduce the change, we ask is, is it going to cost us the the audit? You know, we are yeah. we're introducing that. Is it okay? Yeah, I've definitely seen that. I think it's just another example of, of shift left, right? I mean, yeah, I'm on the DevOps team. We encourage engineering teams to come and work with us, you know, rather than building something and then coming to us to get it deployed. And we have a look at it and we say, well, it's it's not highly available. It's not, you know, you've not thought about security and all of the non-functional stuff. You know, we encourage them to come and work with us up front and we will advise them and consult with them on, on certain aspects of it and you know maybe they talk to a team that's got very good testing in place or something and of course security and the cyber security team does the same thing and tries to get that shifted left 
I think it's, yeah, it was almost the same thing with compliance, right? Sort of shift left compliance, as you say, talk to those people early, get them to understand, bake it in. I have a, I do have a question for you, Marcel. Um, at Trifork, you communicate that you're at the front end of innovation. How do you ensure to deliver this goal to your customers? And what value does it add to their respective industries in defending their market position? Good question. I guess it depends on the customer that we're working for. So first of all, being at the forefront of innovation is respective to what type of customer that we're helping. And so Nicola might require something else than Matt. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's the customer's business that we're working for. And what we try and do is partner as closely as we can with our customers and provide them with the, uh, the IT services they need. And that also means that we challenge them, whether they're doing or applying the right technology or they could do it differently or, or faster or better. I think that's, that's where we bring our value to our customers. Yeah. Do you, Nicola or Matt, do you ever work with external suppliers or do you do it all by yourselves? We actually do most of the things ourselves. And interestingly enough, we use uh, something that was the brainchild of Trifork. I'm not sure if I can call it Trifork, but, uh, you know, we use uh, Axon. Uh, which yeah, is yeah, Axon. yeah. Former uh, Trifork, yeah. Yeah. But generally what we do is because the team is fairly confident in our abilities is we take it and then if it's a vendor, for example, we just ask just generic questions, but we like to get into the nitty gritty ourselves and to fully understand the tool. The more open source, the better, obviously. Yeah. And sometimes we commit to uh, like, for example, Cassandra, a bunch of AWS libraries. We have commits Spring. We are heavy users of Spring. So we have some commits in Spring also, like pull requests. If something we didn't like, please can we do that? Yeah. But yeah, uh, in the past we actually worked with external suppliers in the in the sense uh, with an outsourcing company. Yeah, and it was uh, it was actually doing great. But we for for uh, reasons you know completely different reasons of uh, let's say speed, but more for like company culture, we moved to only relay forty tours. Mm. Yeah, we. I mean, we build we build almost everything in house as well. I guess we're probably similar kind of reasons. I mean, we see ourselves, I think, as a, as a tech company. I, I, I heard somebody say, forgotten where it was, kind of glibly, that, that every company is a tech company now, or every company needs to be a tech company. I think, yeah, that's a little bit, a little bit facetious. But what they mean is, you do maybe have to think like that in a lot of ways, right? You have to think about, you know, sort of sublinear scaling, and you have to think about automation, and you have to think that, you know, so many things can be done by, you know, better or faster by by code. And then actually, everybody, no matter what their role is, if they can replace the more tedious parts of their job with a shell script or an Excel function or something, then they can, you know that toil goes away and they can do they can do the higher value stuff. So yeah, I think we 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 build a lot of stuff uh in-house. We obviously we use open source as well. We contribute back. I think it's one of the ways you differentiate as well, right? Is you know, we by building stuff and hopefully having smart people doing it, we have maybe advantages that that other companies don't. There's things we can do, you know, a speed or a quality that that other people can't. So I think you you can definitely get that. But yeah, of course we use open source, you know all over the place so we're not going to write our own operating systems or anything but yeah and we, we try to be a part of that community right we, we we try to give back okay thank you very much for those answers the next question would be well reducing time to market is the part of the business growth speed does not automatically equal success how does your company align with goals of delivering a quality product or service at speed i would say that actually for us Maybe it's the second or maybe even third requirement. Maybe first would be maybe first would be making sure that you're building the right thing because it's actually a hard learned lesson. Uh, the how do you learn what, what the right thing is, Nicolas? So that's that's the hardest part. 
That's the hardest part. Uh, well, I can tell you what's not the right thing, and that's very easy. When you deliver a feature in a haste and it's not used. Mm. So we've had a lot of those, and we still have some of those that are having, like uh, hanging out from the past, where a client said, it's absolutely a must. This is absolutely a must. And when you are small, in the beginning, we didn't want to bargain so much. We were saying, sure, we'll build it. Then it was delivered. And then nine months later, a year later, it's not uh, uh, <laughs> used. Yeah, uh, so, so you have to think about that from, from a like more data, at least that's my perspective nowadays, more data-oriented way. You should, first of all, for each feature, you should put like some, some value to it and you should have in your culture, whether it's with your product owners, whether it's automatic, like we do, we have uh, statistics of how each feature is used in Datadog, how much of microservice, uh, for example, is used. And you can say, yeah, this feature is not used. And then it's not my gut feeling. It's not that somebody said that to me, but it's something coming out of metrics. And then you can kind of retrospect on that. And based on these retrospectives, you kind of can learn like which features have been the good ones to build versus which not. And that's only the past, right? So now we are at the future. I believe that we you can use all the, the knowledge that you've had from the past. Like this feature was not used, this was not used. This is a flaky client. It takes them like one year to adopt anything that we what we deliver to them. So based on with all that knowledge now, you can decide and prioritize knowing all those things. Otherwise, it's just stab in the dark. Yeah, I think I was going to say something similar that, you know, speed is nothing if you don't learn from it, right? Getting features out fast is no good if you're not, if you don't have the data available, if you if you can't tell whether something's being used and, and being, you know, being successful. And if you're not actually going to change something, right? If you don't have the culture and the people where if you look at that data and it says, you know, this product manager or this, this founder had this idea, they were really keen on it and we did it and we've measured it and it's just not being used. You've got to have the culture where that it's not the person that's wrong, right? But you've got to be able to challenge the idea and you've got to say, look, the data says this isn't working or it, it could be working better. There's an opportunity cost. There's other things we could be building. So I think if you, yeah, what, you know, why do we do speed? I guess it comes from, from the sort of lean stuff and maybe the agile stuff that was around, what, 15 years ago now. That's all about, that's all about iteration, right? That's all about testing experiments and not, not leaving any hypotheses on the, on the shelf, right? So I think I think that's that's what speed is is all about. But yeah, maybe people have taken it too literally and are now delivering bad quality, right? Every everything is in the the name of speed. I think you can do I think you can do both. I think you can go as fast as possible at the quality. You know, you fix the quality bar, especially if you're regulated, you maybe don't have a choice. And then you go as fast as possible. Because there's other there's other axes to this, right? There's other elements of the product. You maybe it is high quality and it is fast, but you only make a little bit of it. You have an idea for a feature and you just do the first bit and you see if anybody uses that and that gives you an indication of whether they want something else. But you can do that fast and you can do that to a good quality. Or maybe the design doesn't look good. You know, there's other axes of the product that you can sort of reduce. It's not just speed and, and quality. And there's other things you can do in your business, right? I, you know, I could go faster and to a higher quality if I had more people or better people or more money or if I'd automated things and reduced the toil or if I let people work from home and they get their commute commuting hours back. You know, there's all these all these kinds of things you can do. So I don't think it's as simple as, as either or. I don't think it's zero sum. Oh. Would you say, Matt, then speed has also something to do with actually the speed that you're able to gather or acquire new data on whether the stuff that you're building is the right stuff or not? So is it more like about becoming data driven and using that data in order to determine whether you're building the right stuff or not? And the speed, you can make a decision, I think, based on it as well. Like if every change to the backlog or to design requires meetings and sign off, or if you trust somebody, 
to look at the data and to do something, even if they do something a little, right? You you trust them to look at the data and just make a decision without any kind of committee or meeting, maybe just to push the code. But all they all they would ever do is make a small change. And then you look at the data for that in one week's time, right? So nobody's ever, you're just nudging it all the time. Nobody's ever going to do a, you know, stop the world. We're going to redesign this whole product. It's going to take three years. Yeah, but so, so then you get into the discussion, I think, of autonomy, mastery, purpose, that sort of stuff, the Simon Sinek stuff. Well, right, and that plays back to that's a lot of, to do with the retention of, of you know good people, right? That we were talking about earlier. I think you can definitely give people autonomy, and by feeling that they are connected to the customers like that, and by feeling that they are sort of have control of the product's destiny, or at least a part of it. I think you know that gives people a sense of purpose, and maybe even a sense of mastery. You know, I, I became a good programmer, great, but I'm also doing some design stuff and some product stuff. So maybe I'm sort of you know master of of this thing that I do, but I'm not just making it up. Like I'm not trying to be an expert at every job. What I'm doing is I'm bouncing off those you know nice friendly guardrails that have been put in place and not making completely blind decisions. I'm looking at data. So there's as much as there can be to, to help me while I'm doing it. Mm. I think the next thing to know is also it's very hard to build an organization that would tremendously improve the speed is building the culture of when the data is missing. You know, because if you have some more, more people that are just put in a system right like that, and they just accept the system and they are accepted with all the benefits and limitations, then it's good, probably it's good, especially if you've built good, good guardrails for them and good uh, uh, you know, data sources for them. But you also need people that think like, is this good enough repeatedly? Like, is this, do we have all the possible data sources to make all the fast decisions? Are we maybe not stalling somewhere because somebody has to approve something? Can we give the most autonomy with the most informed decision uh, possible to each of the teams because only then you can get the best results and then from my perspective what i've seen is you need people that's their only like how can we improve the data gathering and reduce the barriers for team to be their best selves right so if you have developers they're thinking maybe in terms of features and like you have a simple scrum team like a product owner and they're then thinking in their corner and maybe like you know bouncing up different requirements maybe interacting with different systems how do you make sure that these guys are not only thinking within this team, but maybe like what if we merge this system or merge this data source with that data source? And you need to talk to them about that. And hey, this is also a possibility. It's possible to even create new data sources or have new thing for your KPI, not only uptime slash response time, you know, maybe something else like that's related to the business as a whole. And we recently actually had, well, recently, a year ago, we have, you know, in separate teams, we have different KPIs for how uptime is their system, how much is their uptime and how, what is their latency. Perfect. But if you look at it holistically from the top perspective, it's maybe one system calls the other. So the total, actually the total usability of the system is only those, those both systems are working together. That's maybe not a good border, first of all, to this to be by two separate teams. So that's one, one thing. And the second thing is the KPI should be a shared KPI because at the end, the business benefits only if those two services uh, are together. And you need specifically, my point is, you need specifically people to think of what are the next options so we can get more data sources and get better benefits for the business as a whole, holistically, like looking from outside. So, so they, need, they need to think about their team's perspective, but also the bigger yeah. perspective. Exactly. Yeah. How do you get that done? I mean, do you have a culture where that's ground up or do you have somebody with ultimate responsibility? I'm thinking, you know, you've got one service calls another, both have 5% downtime, say. So they both have this, they're both as bad as each other and, you know, that adds up to... More than 5%, like 5%, 12%, whatever it is, and it's too much. You know, each team says, well, it's not our fault. You know, we're, you know, we're, 
we're not the worst one here. Like yeah, we, we've got features to add. The other guys should improve their their quality. Like how how do you how does your organization deal with that? It's well in our I'm not saying that's the best because I can imagine that actually sometimes counter to actually feature adding. But in that place would be my team, which is kind of looking for operational and development excellence only for that like operational development excellence of all the teams it's kind of like the old school architects but if, which which is basically like the worst counter counterpoint of innovation you know you're deep in a bank i always imagine a bank sorry and then you are like in team a and then 10 levels above you there is a architect enterprise architect enterprise, yeah, sorry. enterprise solution architect there's a principal enterprise solution architect who is just no you cannot use tabs here versus spaces or something like that so, so that's definitely not what we're trying to do it's more we're trying to build some sensible guardrails in constant communication with the teams and team leads think okay what is important for you and have you thought about that so it's mostly what we're trying uh, my team specifically is uh, busy with all the time and i think it, it counterbalances the other teams yeah no that is interesting though i think because what you describe is is maybe like the google model of sre right which is a team that is as you say completely responsible for for operational ex excellence and, and for reliability you know that's what this is what google sets out in the sre book but it's it's quite an extreme uh, sort of stance actually it's not that common right i mean the, yeah. the word devops is very badly defined but you think in a, in a lot of companies it's that you build it you run it you know it's giving development teams, the, the skills and the tooling to, to deploy stuff and to, you know, own their own, uh, you know, own their, opera, uh, their own operations. And people throw around the word SRE, but I think that's, SRE is really the opposite, which is saying, no, development teams don't do that. SRE owns it. So that, as you say, like at a company-wide level, you know, for with this set of users, you know, this app, this API endpoint, there is a quality target of this. And I don't care whether there's one microservice or a thousand behind that, you know, this is the SLA. And if we're not meeting it, that team will go and do something about it. Yeah, so it's interesting you've sort of structured things like that. In reality, it's only one SLA and it's the outgoing services, right? So if I sign a contract right now, if we sign a, somebody signs a contract with us, the client doesn't care if there are a thousand microservices behind it or one microservice, they want uptime and the whole feature to work 99.99% of the time, right? Exactly. But I think if you say, oh, we're doing DevOps now and every team, quality, you know, uptime is everybody's responsibility. Every team should, you know, it's now, you know, it has the ability to deploy things or not deploy things and you shouldn't risky deployments and you're in charge of your own uptime all of those thousand microservice teams are all trying to be the second worst right they're all trying they're all trying to go as fast as possible but not be the worst because they know they're going to get told off so you just have this race to the bottom on quality if there's no central central ownership of it but yeah you don't have an architect now thankfully but you've got a sort of an expert operations team yeah kind of Maybe you can do it with a thousand. I've just never seen it work um, with a sort of thousand teams and no no coordination. I wonder whether anybody's built a culture or, or something where that does work, but I, I haven't seen it yet. We are much smaller than Google. <laughs> so I think coordination is also a bit easier in that regard. And also to share like, okay, do it's you can still see the infrastructure. It still fits in a mirror board. You know, with, with the detail, it still fits in the mirror board. And it's not like uh, the team is just responsible for this and they don't they iterate as much as they want in a, a vacuum, you know, not caring about anybody else. This is a counter initiative. And as you mentioned, it's a race to the bottom for everybody because like you have no initiative to be the best. You have initiative to be the second worst. All right. Well, the next question was race against time is not the only challenge companies encounter. Companies also face security issues and stakeholder misalignment. To what extent is this true for your respective industries? 
uh, I would say for, for us, stakeholder misalignment is maybe the biggest problem, even in incidents. The root cause analysis is communication. Something was not aligned. Something was sent when it shouldn't have been sent. An email was uh, sent, then retracted. Oops, sorry, we didn't want to notify you about that. For us, this is the biggest, you know, which is probably like the, the fact of a siloed company. And what I've noticed is that you can break a lot of silos within, like, let's say, you let the developers do their security, you let them do their testing. Everybody is kind of very aligned there. But if you just do that, then you have sales, like sales is not aligned. Marketing is not aligned. Like you need to introduce some, I don't know, DevOps principles to sales and marketing, uh, it feels like, in order to have a proper earning company, you know, so they can also iterate, have fail safes and all, all these stuff. And we are definitely not there. I can tell you that. But it seems that that's the only way. So how do you align with uh, your sales and marketing teams and Nikola? Is it are they like different departments or are you in a sort of multidisciplinary team together with like a sales or marketing guy or as you can imagine like siloed uh, like sales marketing of course they talk so they have I guess now very frequent uh, actually meetings where the most common agendas of the day are outlined so everybody's aware it can feel like a massive waste of time to you know to the to the person that's like just the, the recruits that's in the sales like why do I need to care about this marketing campaign but it feels like also something that is very important because it brings awareness of the whole company it moves more as a whole I'm not sure what they will say, but I wouldn't change that. It needs to have a bit more awareness. Otherwise, it's just like corporal memos every six months. Yeah, I mean, I've seen that. I was with a company that was arranged a little bit differently, organized a little bit differently, and it kind of applied DevOps principles, I guess, to that kind of thing. So marketing marketing was, was a separate department, but they were, and they were internal, you know, they, they were part of the company, but they were meant to be more like an agency. So every, like a marketing agency, so every team that made a product, you know, they didn't you didn't finish it and then throw it over the wall to marketing, right? So devs didn't throw code over the wall to test, and you didn't throw, throw release 3.0 over the wall to marketing. You work with them up front, you know, and sort of shift left way, but you try to engage them, and then more like a consultancy and you say right we're the team that owns this thing and we're responsible for it and we're gonna you know build everything and then we want to see uh that it sells well and which parts of it get used because we're going to double down on those features so kind of using marketing as a service in the same way that you hopefully you might go to a devops team and say we're holding the pager now not the it team because this is what devops means so uh i have an incentive for this thing to work well when it's sort of deployed to production it was kind of the same with with the marketing and sales was done on like a platform engineering kind of uh, model in that company. So every product team, every development team had one or two salespeople kind of, you know, assigned with it. They were in a guild of other salespeople. They had salespeople meetings where they could discuss best practices, but they were on the software development team and they got much more understanding of the development process and the timelines and the trade-offs and, and the way that tech worked. And yeah, it was maybe sort of SRE ahead of its time. And that worked. That worked quite well. I can imagine. I can imagine that you set it up from the beginning like this. And yeah, that's why you got such success, right? All right. I mean, you get all the problems. So then the sort of, you know, the product, who's the boss of that organization then, right? So you end up with uh, the development teams sort of using everybody else as a service. So who really runs the development team? It's probably the product owner. So you had all these product owners. Then, then they were the silos, right? It wasn't by function. It was by product. And it was quite a small company that looked in some ways like a massive multinational you know, with all these siloed 
product divisions fighting each other, but they weren't, you know, huge divisions of a big company. They were like four person development teams, plus a, plus a salesperson, plus a marketing. So yeah, there were definitely downsides, but yeah, it was really interesting. And you, you just made me think that actually this was a quite a long time ago. This was the first job I had and it, it was a lot like the sort of DevOps engagement model, but, but maybe before it's time, but it, yeah, it reduced a lot of friction in some places and it added it in others. It made those teams more agile for sure. Did it make the company as a whole more agile? You know, could it, was it easy to make big changes to the way that you know, go to market happens? Maybe not. We actually do have a question from uh, one of our audience members and they've added a little bit of context. So I'll just quickly read that out. So this individual is working at a large multinational corporation working with energy infrastructure type of products. And they've said that B2B industrial investment products and B2C consumer electronics are very different types of businesses regarding time to market roles. Other products like internet services might be even more different. So their question is, in the different types of markets, what are the underlying mechanisms for this? It's going to be very tough for me to explain about electric engineering market, but I can, I guess it is not about all the underlying common principles where I would say just good engineering and then just drop the mic. I guess in online marketing, which is B2B usually, you would, especially at least in the, in the niche that we are, the biggest underlying principle is that the market is full of copycats. The market is full of people that have the same functionality on paper as you. Sometimes it doesn't differentiate you even doing it better because you need to sell in order to show that you're doing it better. So it's actually pay investing in your own marketing is super important also so that you can actually prove that you can do it better. Yeah, I think in the industry of the electricity industry, I mean, just timelines are a lot longer. So if you want to change the infrastructure that, that supplies you with energy, with power, basically at home or in the office or whatever, that's usually projects with like a timeline of 10, 15 or 20 years or maybe even longer. So I guess then time to market is a different factor in that. Yeah, I'm just trying to apply it now to the mar maybe the, the market or the products that we're more familiar with. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the question is, you know, how do we stay agile? What, what does agile agility and adaptability even mean when yeah, the delivery cycle is, you know, 20 years for, a, you know, control, control software for a nuclear power plant or something? I guess if you think, yeah, you think about what you do with a, with a B2C product, you know, you have to, have, we talked about having the right quality and having, you know, uh, non-functional stuff. So the, the right, well, that is a non-functional thing, having the right quality, having the right performance, having the right level of security, and then actually, you know, having the right features, having, having built the right thing. I think in those kind of, because I used to do embedded systems and it's it's kind of similar, like it takes a long time, you get to deliver it. You can test it, but you only get to, do, you get to deliver it once, right? You get to actually bake it into the firmware and, and ship it once. Yeah. So there's a big incentive to get things right the first time, like on the tech side, on, on the quality and the speed and the security, there's a big incentive to get things, you know, just right first time because you, because you can't do that iteration cycle. In our case, we couldn't patch it, you know? Um, and there's, there's ways and means of doing that. You can go all the way to formal methods if you are actually doing nuclear power plant stuff. But yeah, you can look at testing and you can look at all that kind of stuff. But that's on the tech side. But I think on the feature side, which is maybe what we've been talking about more, you can work with them. I don't think there ever is one delivery. If, if you're doing a 10-year project or a one-year project for, a, for another big enterprise like that, it's not like the first time you talk to them is when they get the product, right? If you're doing B2C software, the first that you, you build something and the first time you really talk to that particular customer is when they find your website and they spend five minutes reading it and watching the video and they make a, like a buy or no buy decision. I think if, you're, if you've signed a contract and you engage with somebody, shift left again, like show them your design, show them your UI sketches, show them partially working demos and say, is this what you'd want? Are we on the right 
track because I don't want when you finally do user acceptance testing, I don't want you to reject this. And I think that's the same way internally you see good teams working with a product owner. You know, you have your sort of two weekly uh, sprint review and some teams will build something and then they kind of present it to the product owner and say, is, is that what you actually wanted? And I think the way to do that is to talk to the product owner every day and say, are we on the right track? You know, are we going? and then the, the sprint review just becomes a like a fait accompli, right? It becomes more of a you and the product owner together as a team showing wider stakeholders, you know, what, what you've built, but you know, it's the right thing. So I would say, yeah, kind of work with them, shift all of that because it's about getting feedback. Like you can get feedback if you have those big commercial relationships, you can shift that stuff left to lead the tech You know, the actual code might not be tested for real in terms of its performance and its quality until it gets out there. So I think that's classic software engineering, right? Get out your books from college on, uh, on yeah, testing and, and resiliency and high availability and all that kind of stuff. All right. Well, we are running kind of out of time. So I just want to do a quick sum, sum up question. And that's to all of you. What should the take home message for our audience on how to maintain your lead in a hyper competitive market and protect or increase your market share using technology? And what would be your advice for your respective industries? If I can have something catchy, it would be just do proper engineering always, all the time, and don't compromise the quality, the tests, just don't compromise anything technological. If you iterate on that repeatedly, you're going to get at the end a much better product as a whole than if you compromise. So almost never compromise. Don't listen to the product owners. Yeah, mine would be to never sit still. So once you think you've reached your goals and set them a bit further again and go after those because otherwise you get maybe a bit lazy and someone will well become faster or better than you and overtake you always look around you i think i'd say automate all the things automate everything you know you do something once that's an experiment if you do it twice it needs to be a script because otherwise you just accrete you know you just gain all of these manual things and i don't just mean to like tech and tech debt i mean your business processes your marketing i want to send my third marketing email you know why isn't it a mail merge yet everywhere you can apply technology and i guess this comes back to every every company you should think like a tech business now in tech and outside of it you know if you can automate it or if you can uh, you know speed the user up somehow do that because you, you've got to your business has got to scale and it should scale sublinearly right so you're the marginal every time you add a marginal person every time you double your size you should be producing more than double the amount of value basically because you know the people who you've got shouldn't be shouldn't be held down by ever increasing amounts of uh, you know toil it's, it's also not good for your profitability if you don't more than double your uh, outcome <laughs> well exactly right it's not it's not a widget making factory and i think all, <laughs> all of these analogies where people talk about sausage factories and stuff they're cute but the economics is is different and it's not necessarily zero sum and it's, it's not all linear like that like the math actually just behind those analogies just doesn't work so well great thanks that was all uh, really sound advice i'd like to thank all of you for your time today once again we hope that you've enjoyed today's tech leader panel thank you all once again for being with us and it has been a pleasure mm -hmm.